think how uh, blessed we are, fresh, you can feel uh, autumn in the air, and uh, it's uh, kind of beautiful. We're so thankful, and what a beautiful opportunity to come and worship together. Praise the Lord, thank you for joining us today, and it is kind of exciting for us to be firing up our, our uh, uh, high school, junior high, Sunday school youth group again. Been a, been a few years since we've had uh, uh, enough kids to have uh, high school, junior high, so uh, we're thankful for that. Be praying uh, for that. The Lord would bless and use that for his glory. Thanks so much to Regis and Jen. We have to say, come on now, Jen is a big part of helping with this. So thank you and, and praise the Lord. We'll be uh, praying for you. Uh, but uh, we, we always study. I study through the Word of God. Um, and we're, we have, last week, uh, we finished the book of Mark. You come to verse 8 as you read through it. And um, it comes to this weird entrance into the text of Scripture, right? Uh, it's beautiful. Let me just read the, the brief story. It's in the last eight. Obviously, I'm biasing things tremendously here. These are the last eight verses of Mark. <laughs> um, and these are the amazing words. Let's, let's pray first. Father, as we uh, take a few moments to think about your word today we're thankful for this opportunity we we uh, trust you and we trust what you have said to us so give us grace and wisdom as we think through uh, what you have for us today through jesus our savior amen so let me read these these verses it says when sabbath was passed mary magdalene Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And I think really the key five words in English here are just as he told you. This is not a surprise. It should not have been a surprise. He redundantly told them. It's recorded at least three times. And he's been telling them for a long time. It wasn't something he brought up in the last couple of hours. I mean, for months, literally. Uh, one of the passages says, and he began to teach them that. He would go to Jerusalem. He would be arrested. He would be abused. He would be beaten. He would 
I mean, it goes through the whole list. And that he would be killed, and that he would be buried, but the third day he would rise again. Anyway, sometimes we just don't hear it, right? And, and uh, that's part of the message here. We've got to hear the word of God. Just as he told you. Verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb. And they're terrified. Uh, this whole thing. They, they went there expecting to see a dead Jesus. They had spent, spent a lot of money uh, on all these spices, which would be kind of a preservative. Uh, and also, basic, honestly, the spices were to cover the stench of the rotting body. Kind of gross, but that's, they would bury people above ground, and they'd be in this rock tomb, and they would rot. And then about a year later, they'd roll back the stone, go in, take the bones, and push them into a smaller box, and then reuse the tomb. Uh, a family tomb over and over again, eventually. Uh, this was an unused tomb, you know, so it was kind of cool. Jesus was the first one to use it. But so it's, com you know, completely shocking to them what they actually found. The stone is rolled away. There's this white, and we know this young man in white clothes is a, an angel from you know, other, the other accounts. This is mentioned in the other accounts. So he's this shining, bright, dazzling individual saying these things like, ah, <laughs> you know, it's echoing in, in the rocky tomb. What's, it's all just overwhelming to them. They're, they're astonished. Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Uh, we know that that was a temporary situation. Uh, we don't know how long that took. I mean, it could have been a half an hour or an hour. But uh, eventually they did go and tell the disciples uh, there's, there's sort of more to the story, but it seems, so here's the, here's the situation, right? Uh, you come, as you read it in the English, and this, this phrase is in my Bible, quote, in brackets, right? Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And then you go down to verse 9, and my Bible has it double bracketed, uh, all the way 9 through 20. So if you have a study Bible, uh, you might have a nice extended note on this. Uh, let me try to explain what's going on. And it actually gives us this rare opportunity to talk about the undergirding of, of our Bible, how we got our Bible. Uh, briefly, I'm not going to, definitely not going to cover this thoroughly, uh, you know, I've had the advantage of going to college, and then I went to you know, graduate school, seminary, and so that's something I'm familiar with, and it it's, takes a little while to understand it. But let me just present it clearly and hopefully uh, helpfully uh, to you. Reason is, we have that line in here, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20, is, is precisely that. The way we got our English Bible is uh, it you know, was early on translated in England by, by Tyndale and other folks, and then finally King James put together a troop of men, uh, probably all men, uh, 
to do the translation of what's, guess what, called the King James Bible. That was in 1611, 1611. And that's, that's after the printing press was invented. Prior to that time, uh, you know, in that la the hundred years prior to that, every book, every document was written by hand. And that's, that's actually what the word manuscript means, written by hand. And um, so they did all this work. Let me, I was going to say this too. The Bible is written primarily in two languages. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, almost exclusively, I like 99.9%. The, the little 0.01% of it is in, uh, not Arabic, that wasn't existing at that time, but Aramaic. Uh, there's a little part of Daniel, and I think a part of some other book, uh, very, very little bit, mainly Hebrew. And of course, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, um, knew it was the word of God, and they were extremely careful on uh, passing down to us the Hebrew Bible. Uh, one of the most interesting things about that was, uh, let's just put it this way. So by 1611, uh, they had a Hebrew Bible, and they were going to translate the King James Version out of the Hebrew Bible. Um, the Hebrew Bible that they had at that time would have dated, you know, I'm just round, round figures, like 700 A.D. Called, it was called the Masoretic Text. Um, and so, you know, that's pretty recent. This is the, the last of the Old Testament was written somewhere around 400 B.C. Okay, so that's a long period of time, 1,100 years roughly, between when it was written and when the document they had, the Hebrew Bible, but the Hebrews were extremely careful on how they passed down this handwritten document. They would, they would count the letters. They knew how many letters were in the uh, document, in the Bible. And the cool thing is, you probably know this, I'm realizing, yeah, watch the time. But <laughs> I'll, I'll kind of be a little faster. But it's really, really cool because what happened? What happened when a young, um, I think it was an Arab boy, was walking around the, the Dead Sea, uh, it, it, you know, in, in, uh, in the 20th century, mid-20th mid century. He threw a rock into a cave and heard a weird uh, echoey sound back there. And he goes in and discovers what we call Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the, the coolest thing is there were large parts of the Old Testament in these scrolls. And these scrolls would have dated, you know, to B.C. era, 100, 200 before Christ era. And they pulled this out, like it's called 1Q Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And they go, oh, this is exactly what the Masoretic text said from, you know, roughly 700 A.D. So... The Old Testament transmission is like rock solid. But what happened with the New Testament was in the early church, things were in turmoil. Uh, there was a huge persecution. In 70 AD, the center of the church was Jerusalem, and the Romans smashed Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
uh, and they were scattered about the world, and there was severe persecution of the church. You know, we worry about stains on the carpet or, or uh, you know, boilers. By the way, we have a brand new boiler. It's working great. You know, hallelujah. <laughs> um, but, you know, we worry about, like, where we meet. You know where the church used to meet? In the catacombs under Rome, which was the place where they buried dead bodies. Uh, you know, it's like, be the building committee there. You know, uh, another femur fell out of the wall. Uh, <laughs> we got the femur committee out here. <laughs> you know, what, I, what my point I'm making is they had dirt floors, they had uh, skulls decorating their walls, perhaps, and, and that doesn't even matter because we're worshiping the God of the universe. And I, you cannot make a cathedral that beats just the revelation of who God is, or even matches it. I've been to some amazing cathedrals. Maybe you have. We were in the city of Bath, not Bath, Bath, England. Okay, Go to the, the abbey at Bath. Anybody been there? You've been there. I mean, it's stunning. It's beautiful. I, I would love to, you know, preach a sermon there. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, but my point is this. It, it, where you worship the Lord God doesn't matter. The fact that you worship him in spirit and in truth, that's what really matters. But what I, my point is this. The church was under tremendous pressure and persecution and difficulty in the period of 100 to 300 to 400 A.D., right? So what happened during that period, they're handwriting the Bible. They love the Bible. And they're handwriting it carefully and passing it around. And eventually, into the later years, uh, we ended up 500, 600, 700, up to, up to 1,600, uh, 1,500. We have a whole bunch of manuscripts of the Greek Bible. And there's a whole big, huge majority of them that are, that are pretty much verbatim. They got really good at, you know, copying all of those texts. And that was what the King James people had in 1611. It was called the Texas Receptus, the received text. And they translated from it. It's a great text, beautiful, wonderful text of the Holy Scripture. But what happened was in the 1800s, uh, people were doing a lot more archaeology and research into this, and all of a sudden, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but you know what, what, what occurred was they found older manuscripts that predate the majority text, and they were somewhat different from the majority text. And that's what we have here. So the majority text would have had the 9320, but these older manuscripts that we, that we discovered later, right, uh, didn't have this. So, and, and those older manuscripts are supported also by little fragments of, of paper called papyrus. Um, so the Bible scholars studied this and decided, well, this is probably actually not a part of what Mark actually wrote. Uh, and so that's why we have this banner, this uh, piece of 
text saying this is not from the earliest manuscripts. So let me, let me go through a couple things here. Again, we have extreme evidence for the New Testament. There's like 5,800 plus Greek manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament. Not all complete, uh, but uh, some of them complete, some of them big parts of it, some of them very, very small parts. The smallest one has like two verses um, in it. And there's 20,000 plus, as they said, 20 to 25,000 copies of of the New Testament in various languages. Early on, the church started, this is really a cool thing, the church started to translate the Bible into everyday language of the people. Uh, this is a principle. When, when God chose to give us the New Testament, he chose the language of trade. He chose Koine Greek. That was Everybody knew that language. It was the language of trade. It was the common language. And that's what we should be about, you know, communicating the truth of God in a common language. But the beauty of this is we have all of this evidence, and some of the earliest copies of these translations don't have this part in the Bible either. This little, this little section and also that section in John about the woman caught in adultery. That's, that's probably not in the Bible either. It's hard to say these things because those are my favorite stories. Uh, well, yeah, but we want it to be a verified, actual word of God, not just what we like to hear. These are, these are some, Latin, of course, remember, the Bible was not written in Latin. The Hebrew and Aramaic in Old Testament and Greek, Koine Greek in the New Testament. It wasn't written in Latin, that's a translation, but it's helpful in, and then Coptic, which is an Egyptian language, Syriac. Armenian, Georgian, Gothic, and, and Arabic eventually. And then even if we didn't have all of this, which is huge, better than any other document of antiquity, we have so much evidence holding up our, our document. We also have quotations and sermons and writings from ancient teachers of the church. Virtually the entire New Testament is quoted somewhere and written down uh, in a manuscript of a teaching or a sermon. So we have lots and lots of evidence. Okay, so again, what happened was literally in, in the late 1800s, uh, biblical scholars started discovering other sources of text. So there's, I'm, just for our purposes, and we have seven minutes, <laughs> there's two main um, types of texts, traditions, okay? There's the majority text, which I'm not disrespecting the majority text. It's quite amazing and wonderful. But then there's the earlier, this is also called the Byzantine text, majority Byzantine, because the uh, Byzantine Empire supported that majority text. Then the earlier ones are often called the Alexandrian uh, texts, they are the ones that they were found in Egypt, and Ale Alexandria is, is a part of Egypt, etc. Um, and so the earliest ones don't have some of these sections in the Bible. Now here, I've just got some pictures to show you. This is, um, this is a very famous complete Bible called, uh, Charlotte told me not to tell you this, so don't tell her I told you. 
<laughs> it's called the Sinaiticus. Okay, sounds like a nerve problem, but <laughs> it was it was found in the Sinai near the Sinai. This is a complete uh, Bible, a New Testament, and it, it is very early in the like third century, so two hundred something, two fifty, two seventy five A.D. Uh, and this this version doesn't have this old ending. This is a picture of a very, very famous one, also quite precious and wonderful. This is in the Vatican, so it's called Vaticanus, uh, Codex Vaticanus. And again, these are the early sources that were kind of rediscovered in the late 1800s. And then so by 1881, a couple of amazing Greek scholars were bold enough to, to publish the Greek Bible uh, according to these earlier manuscripts. And it kind of rocked the world. But so by 1900, almost every new English Bible, uh, even foreign language Bibles, are based on this text that takes into consideration the majority and the Alexandrian uh, text tradition. Part of the cool thing is, so we have these big, big ones from, say, like I said, 250 to 300 A.D., the year of our Lord A.D., and th then subsequent to that, they did a lot of, of uh, archaeology, you know, digging in the dirt and finding things in old libraries and stuff. What, and what they found was a whole lot of papyrus. And you can see papyrus is paper, you know, put together with that plant in Egypt, the papyrus. And you see how it's got strands and strands and stuff like that. Um, and they found a whole bunch of Bibles uh, on papyrus. And these are, are just... And there's large sections of, of like various parts, various books of the Bible on these papyri. Um, and here's another picture. This is in a very famous library called the Chester Beatty uh, Library of Papyri. Um, and so all of these, the, and these are really old. They date from like 150 A.D. Uh, to, you know, up into the 300s A.D.s as well. So the Bible the best we can tell is probably finished by John in around 95 A.D. And so we have copies of even John's writings uh, from as early as 150, you know, 60, 70, 80 years later after the original. Uh, I must say also, uh, it's very interesting, something for you to ponder. God in his great wisdom did not preserve the actual original uh, autographed the original writing, say, from Mark. We don't have that. Uh, you can ponder why. I, I think, I don't know, my speculation is that God knew that we would just worship that thing. You know? It would be like this huge relic. You go, uh, and he, in his wisdom, got rid of that. Uh, so our confidence is in the, the God of the Bible. And we don't, we're not, we don't worship the Bible. We worship God who has communicated. Now, uh, I hope you're not tuned out. Is anybody tuned out? Okay, T tune, tune in for a second. This is, this is most important right now. I, uh, this is a quote from a really current, important theologian named D.A. Carson. He, uh, was an emeritus, he is an emeritus professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the great school near Chicago. And he's the president and founder of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, but... This is what he says, and all conservative uh, theologians agree with this. You know, get this point. 
Nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. I mean, we're talking about the differences. You know, the Alexandrian has differences from the majority. I mean, basically, to put it in layman's language, it just doesn't make a difference. And any doctrine, anything we believe, both of these traditions teach that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Both of these tradi traditions teach that Jesus died for our sins. You know, the, all of the doctrine we believe, um, this is true for any textual tradition. See, majority, Alexandrian, you know, the Byzantine, uh, they're, they're, there's no doctrine that's affected. So, okay, the, the interpretation of individual patches, uh, passages may well be called in question, you know, like, well, what exactly do they mean? Uh, but it doesn't affect a doctrine, but never is a doctrine affected. That's uh, literally the most important thing you can observe. The reason I say that's so important is because there's a lot of people trying to make a sort of conspiracy issues about this. That, oh, whoa, 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 you know, we gotta, we gotta use the King James, King James only, because all other Bibles are, are terrible. They're, they're from Satan. You know, all these other Bibles are from Satan. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, may I just say, as, as kindly, as gently as possible, that's ridiculous. <laughs> okay? That is totally ridiculous. It's anti intellectual. Not true. Not true. Uh, yes, yes. You can find a place in the King James where it has the word Christ, and in this version it doesn't have it. You know, aha! See, they're trying to get rid of it. No, 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 no. You're telling me that this version doesn't mention Christ? You know, no, it's ridiculous. Uh, so don't be sucked into that. Don't be sucked into that. Uh, it's, like a, it's like an alleyway of uh, conspiracy theory. Not true at all. Uh, we just, textual criticism is, is taking the, the 5,800 Greek texts we have and doing the best we can to understand what exactly was the original. And so we, we have so much evidence God has given us that we can be very, very certain that we hold you know, the word of God in our hands and we can trust it as a reliable, reliable word. Okay. All right, I was just going to use that as the introduction. Uh, <laughs> I'm always a, a, a... Let's close with... Here, this is my next slide, the reliable word. Um, I'm going to... Oh, that means I've got 10 more minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Hebrews 2, I'm, I'm going to throw these references out. Maybe you make uh, refer, uh, you know, look it up on your own. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 is really wonderful because it kind of it presents this... Uh, Succession. It says, uh, this, the word came from the Lord to the apostles to us. That's you know, basically how it happened. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25 just emphasizes that we have the imperishable living word that is preached to us. So, so beautiful. And 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, let's look at that one very quickly. I want to look at the last two. So 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, and I want to put in at verse 16. It says this. This is so, so important. 
where we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is Peter. I saw this with my own eyes. And when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, remember that's one of those glorious Hebraisms, the majestic glory, talking about God himself, they didn't like to say the name God, so they substitute other words for it. It's just a glorious thing. And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Talking about what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus transfigured before them and was shining brighter than that young man in the tomb. He says, I was there. I saw this. I had this experience with God. Okay, that's important. But look, because look what he says next. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You know, someday Christ will come back. Every eye will see him. And then we won't be depending on the written word at the, in the same way at that time. But here's, here's the point, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Some guy didn't sit down and say, I think I'll write the Bible. No, it's produced by the will of God. It is the production of God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is our reliable word. And I want to end with first, the next, the last one, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Uh, having run low on time, I'm not spending uh, all time on this, but just to introduce it again, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. This is a, a beautiful, beautiful text because uh, we, we homeschooled our kids, right? And uh, I support all kinds of different educational choices, mind you. But we found homeschooling to be pretty amazing. And Timothy was homeschooled. Okay? That's why I like this. And it, early on, it, it, he, he says, and you know who homeschooled him? Look at verse um, 6, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 1. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Grandmother and mom. No mention of dad. No. Mom and grandma, you're doing something amazing when you're uh, touching the young life of, of your grandchild or your child. So, um, Verse 14, then, of 3.14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Yeah, you learned it from Lois and Eunice and me too, Paul would say. 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And of course, here's one of the most important fundamental verses on the authority of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I want to close with that, that uh, the word of God we have is, is, is based so well on, on this great pile of evidence of an, a careful, careful work over centuries by, by textual critics who, who love the word and they want to get it right and they've produced for us a, a text that can be trusted and we have a likewise an English translation of that text that is reliable and trustworthy. And this word, breathed out by God, I want to spend just a second on that because I have a quote here from B.B. Uh, Warfield. He died in 1921. He was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. And um, I have the extended quote and I've highlighted sort of the great parts. Um, this is, he's commenting on this word, God breathed. Because it was translated inspired. All scripture is inspired by God. And it's, it's kind of a missing the point of the, the Greek word, which literally is theonoustos, God breathed. Okay? This is what he says about it. And we'll, we'll be closing with this. What it says of scripture is not that it is breathed into by God or is the product of a divine inbreathing into its human authors, but that it is breathed out by God. God breathes the product of the creative breath of God. In a word, what is declared by this fundamental passage is simply that the scriptures are a divine product. No term could have been chosen which would have more emphatically asserted the divine production of Scripture than that which is here employed. The breath of God is in Scripture just the symbol of His almighty power, the bearer. So the breath of God is the bearer of His creative word. By the word of Jehovah, we read in significant parallel of Psalm 33, verse 6, were the heavens made. By the word of Jehovah were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now, how did this occur? God breathed it out. God spoke it into existence. He is the almighty God. You know, come to the Bible and you find the supernatural God. Not, not something, you know, a little tiny bit above natural, but supernatural. He's all-powerful. He's phenomenal. He's worthy of our praise, our trust our worship, our lives. Uh, uh, finishing the quote. And it is particularly where the operations of God are energetic that this term is employed to designate them. God's breath is the irresistible outflow of his power. When Paul declares then that every scripture or all scripture is the product of the divine breath, is God breathed, 
he asserts with as much energy as he could employ that Scripture is the product of a specially divine operation, BBYK. So all this to say, we have a trustworthy Bible, and God, it is the word of God which we should trust, and it's by the word of God we learn of our sin, our sinfulness, and our need of the Savior, and the provision of Jesus, uh, and, and the coming again, as, as Pastor Eugene said, Jesus is coming again. Uh -uh. And we need to be ready for his return. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. And thank you even for uh, the fact that you've given us so much solid evidence in Greek documents, manuscripts, uh, to support your word. Lord, we pray that we will trust you and we'll trust your word and be taught by you. Uh, that we'll uh, be encouraged to honor you and to know you through your precious word. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is called the Word. Amen.